When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Now, Chris Ma is a former Australian Army officer who spent 20 years in the service, including 10 years as a leader and commander in the Special Forces, during which time he led Australian soldiers on very complex missions all over the world, with the consequences of failure being very high. So we're talking about leadership, we're talking about understanding failure and how to execute. Now, having worked on the front line all his life, Chris was motivated to contribute to something bigger than himself. So along with his two best mates, he created Sonda, S-O-N-D-E-R. That's an app making the world a safer place. It's a marketplace through an app matching emergency service providers to those who need emergency services, but by the way, across the world. Sonda is changing the way Australians think about their own personal safety and their welfare. Whether you're being followed, walking to your car at night, dealing with an aggressive customer, worried about your safety, just feeling lost or having mental health issues, Sonda are there 24-7 to give you support. It's a great concept. I want to ask Chris why Purpose was such a strong motivator for the foundation of this business. Now, Sonda is now a disruptor with a conscience where military veterans or people just generally from the emergency services side have the opportunity to use their expertise to help people in the community feel safer and better looked after. So let's get into it. Chris Ma, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks very much for having me, Mark. So just give me a bit of perspective. Because a lot, not a lot of everybody, we don't actually show this on YouTube or anything like that, so not a lot of people can see, but give me your age. Let's let the audience know around about your age. <laughs> I'm 38. 38, so you're a young fella. Um, and uh, would you live in Sydney now? I do. You live yes. in Sydney now. So you're a Sydney boy? I am. Sydney born and bred. Uh, yep. Spent the formative years here, um, you know, early, early years in the Eastern suburbs, of course, you know, at the time, a bit of a Roosters fan, but as, as you know already, Mark, matriculated to, to rugby union later in life. And I think it's really important. So, like, you know, we're going to talk about your business in the second half. And what's important for me anyway is that budding entrepreneurs, all the aspirational people who are listening to this, or those people who are in business and they're struggling, um, or, or those people just doing well in business, they want to hear another business owner, you're a business owner, um, they want to know what drives you, where you come from, what were your influences in your life, um, where the decision-making processes happened and how it happened that you decided to build this business called Sonda, which we'll talk about a bit later. So we really want to go right back to the early days. Like let's take me back to when you uh, 
before you left Sydney and went up to Queensland. So how old were you when your last memories of being in Sydney as a young man? I left Sydney when I was about nine years old. My my parents had just recently split up. You know, I think that's a, a story for many young Australians. Well, I've, got, I've done it three times myself. Yeah, so. yeah, my dad's pretty good at it himself. But uh, yeah, look, for, happily for, for my siblings and I, it was a really amicable split. Are you the youngest in the family, oldest? No, I've got a younger sister and a, and a few half siblings, two sisters. And so you're the oldest out of, uh, you're the out oldest of my out of mum's uh, kin. Yeah, that, right. That's okay. right. So we, we moved um, thereafter to, to Queensland. To you moved with your mum or your dad? With my mum. And whereabouts in Queensland did you go to? Oh, we lived on the north north side of Brisbane and uh, yeah, had a terrific childhood, frankly. I mean, you know, I mentioned my parents were still rather close, um, amicable split. So we got to share time with them, you know, in a terrific, terrific way, actually. Some of the memories I have from my early years my parents were really motivated and driven to get us experiences. So we, we weren't rich in the sense of assets and, and, and things, um, but I think you know, quite well off in terms of the opportunity to embark on a, a range of different experiences from mountain climbing to you know, surfing and all the usual things you do. You know, well, that's, that's interesting because oh, I, 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 yes, that's, that's really interesting to me, uh, the fact that you recognise today that um, you had lots of experiences because to me life's richness of life is about the experiences you've had. At a younger age, what you're sort of suggesting to me is that your parents were open to providing platforms for adventure for you? Yes, certainly. So how did you approach adventure when you were, say, 10 or 12? What, what did you think about it? Is that something you were looking for? Look, I don't know that I was particularly looking for it, Mark, but it was just normalised in our life. We, When we were living in Sydney, we were fortunate to grow up close to the water. I mean, we were sort of you know in Sydney Harbour sailing most every day. Um, you know, in a in a canoe or doing some sort of adventure, and of course, times were a little bit different back then. So um, there was probably a little bit more comfort, less fear. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you're young enough to not even recognise what fear was. Potentially, I'm sure my parents had a well, bit. Yeah, but of your parents didn't instill it into you either, which is that's a really interesting thing because I mean, I see people today with their ten year old kids. I mean, like like this morning, like talking about um, face masks, and you know, it sort of instills on in young people's minds when they're kids. And builds actually some sort of um, thought process that there's some danger. Yet when I grew up, and you were telling me when you grew up, and you might have been a member of the VYC. I don't know. You, but, I was, but, yeah. you were okay, the VYC, and you you took your little what was this tinny or whatever. I don't know. What did what, what, what you sail? Oh, back then I'd, I'd struggle to even remember. But it was a Vaucluse Junior was, was sort of the going yeah. trend back and they, then. And you got, a little, you got a little single sailing boat, and no one ever said you the sharks out there, the bull sharks out oh, no. there. No, no, and no. you went out there on Saturday morning or whatever day of the week it was. And you went sailing and you just thought, oh, well, that's what I do. I go, so no one's sort of saying, now look, Chris, look out for the fins and look out for uh, the boys and watch out for the ferry and look out for the big sailing ship. No one's saying that shit to you. So y- your sense of adventure started there because adventure is about not having fear, not not having so much fear in your system that you won't actually take the step forward. Business is like that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you've got to not have so much fear that you won't take the step forward. And it's not, it's not about backing yourself. I think it's about eliminating or not having the not having the those fears built up in your system. So that, you know, I, I find that really interesting. You tell me that, like, because you're right. But like growing up in Vaucluse you know, thirty years ago is not like growing up in Vaucluse today. It wasn't a, as rich an area. Oh no, no, it no. wasn't anywhere near as privileged as it is today. But the thing was, it wasn't eventually. There was the parks down there. There was all this. You go walking, hang around the cliffs, hang around the gap there. I mean, I, I know a lot of parents let their kids go around those those places. Today, there's a fucking fence. It's two meters high. You can't even 
venture over the edge of the cliff and have a little look down there and sort of get that sense of excitement you got as a young boy. You go sailing today, everybody's worried about, well, you know, what's going to happen for the sailors. But you grew up like this and did that carry on into Brisbane? Yes, it, it certainly did. I, you know, my formative years as a, as a, a young young man, young young person, you spent, you know, continuing water sports has been a sort of key sort of measure throughout my life. Um, and, and that of my family, frankly, my mum my and dad both provided just an incredible upbringing, as I mentioned, which I'm, I'm really proud of. And my wife and I try and do this for our two little girls at the moment. Um, we're certainly, I guess, the antithesis of helicopter parents. We we don't mind scraped knees and you know, a couple of you know, small bruises that are naturally- But you do um, that because- it, Natural it, from adventure. Yeah. So are you consciously saying to your wife and yourself, do you actually have a, con- a conscious conversation and say, let's- parlay back into our children the sort of lifestyle that we had because it was actually a healthy lifestyle? It's a deliberate decision. A deliberate decision, yeah. Absolutely. Um, my wife, uh, she's an adventurous person. We we met, you know, some 10 years ago or thereabouts. She was an, a pilot for the United Nations World Food Program and spent time flying through the Arctic and, and through the Middle East and, and, and Asia, including Afghanistan, Pakistan, whole places like that. So she's got adventure at her core. That's probably the reason it works so well, frankly. And, you know, we look forward in, in a few years to sailing around the world together as a family and giving our kids, you know, real and meaningful experiences. And I guess part of that ambition for us is in recognition. And this is just a personal view, I'm not asking anyone to subscribe to this, but, you know, hard skills, there's potential that they become commoditized over the course of time, hard mathematics skills, hard accounting skills, hard lawyer skills and, and whatnot. Our, our vision for our children, at least, is to build emotional intelligence, empathy, leadership qualities, enable them to engage at a human level, understand resilience and what it means to mend a sail or a rudder when you snap it off in the South Pacific or, or whatever it happens to be. And, and that's how we're, you know, we're choosing to live our lives. Do you see these skills, they're, they're what I call the soft skills as opposed to the hard skills, but they're not soft in, by any stretch of the imagination. Do you see these skills that you're trying to encourage into your children's brain and senses, do you see those as something that is there to just give them a similar sort of upbringing to the, what you had, or you see it there as because there's something that's going to equip them for the future in terms of business or their, their survival, survivability? It's the latter. So I'm not trying to mimic the sort of life that I had. I think every parent would want the very best for their children. I guess at a, you know, perhaps this is a little bit, bit grand. I don't mean it in this way, but if you were to look at the, the trend of the world, you know, the increasing globalization, there's a, there's a world at pace. And uh, and as it gets more dynamic, it, it shrinks. Yeah, it becomes the same. Yeah, and I want to equip our little girls, you know, to be people of the future and, and to, to lead and, and understand and be empathetic and do all the things that will make them good humans. If I asked you now, what would you thank your mum and dad for? I mean, there's, there's so much, but... Uh, In relation to you? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's um, breeding resilience. And that wasn't by virtue of, you know, a shared hardship or anything like that. It was just, it was encouraged to scrape an E. It was encouraged to get a bit messy and a bit dirty. You you're encouraged to fail. And by failing, of course, you grow. And there's a terrific book I'm sure you've read uh, called Anti-Fragile. It's, it speaks of this notion that you know, things that are robust are hard to break, but things that are anti-fragile grow from being broken. A muscle might be a good example of this. You don't want to work it too hard, of course, because you'll tear it and, and then you'll you'll do some you know, proper damage to it. But if you if you work it, if you continue to stretch it, um, then ultimately it will get stronger and, and people are like that. Do you think that thought process is a reaction to a milieu or a movement and momentum of people who actually are fragile or expect everyone to be looking after them? Because I, I see that there's two different groups emerging. There's the group that think that 
oh, don't do this, don't do that. Everyone owes me a living. Um, I, I, I'm entitled, you know. And then there's another group, fuck you entitled ones. Um, we're resilient. We're going to actually battle through this. To me, they're the business owners. So do you think that – are you responding to something that's going on out there in society or are you just independently thinking about this with your wife? Look, I, I think the strong people in whichever context that happens to be, whether that's – Strong the right word? Is it misdirected or directed? I mean, which one is it? Well, in the way I'll relate it, I think strong's appropriate. It's, you know, there, there's strength in, in physicality, there's there's moral strength, there's there's strength of ethics and, and all these things. And I, I think it's it's the – the requirement, it's the the duty of the of the strong in those contexts to to look after people that are a little bit more vulnerable. Is that like leadership for you? Do you think that's what leaders should be doing? I think absolutely. So the, it's the duty of leaders, of course, to look out for the people around them. It's not to impose yourself on them. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, it's to enable them to empower them to to get on with their life. And and that actually we'll talk about it later. But that's the foundation of our business, Sonda. Correct. So I want to jump from. This sort of, you probably didn't think it was idyllic at the time, but because you probably get a whack on the ass every now and then. But, <laughs> yeah, sure. but when you look back, a pretty good upbringing. Most certainly. Okay. I want to jump forward from that and into your career, early career. So where did you go? What, what did you do? So I went to I went to a school called Nudgee, College St. Joseph's College Nudgee yep. in Brisbane. Great rugby union it's school. A, it's a terrific rugby union school. I, I played... Uh, First grade rugby most of my sort of adult life, but in at Nudgee, I was playing fourth or fifth grade. <laughs> Do you play first grade down here or up there? Oh, actually, over in, over in Perth and in Perth, the, okay, the yeah. services rugby for the Australian Army uh, yep. and uh, and Australian Services Rugby Union on, on tour. So yeah, anyway, um, you know, so nothing of the sort of ilk of you know, many of the listeners, of course, but uh, but it was good fun times, and I enjoyed the camaraderie and I enjoyed the the contact. And so that, that's important though, because I, I think in the build here, um, what we're talking about here is you playing in a team environment. Always. Yeah. So you grew up with a sense of adventure, just going out and doing it, like, yeah, going sailing, you know, climbing, rock climbing, whatever it is, you know, like I just did it because, not because I'm super brave or not because I'm super courageous. It's, it's just normal. And and I because I don't have all that other shit. I become brave when I have a whole lot of shit put in front of me and then I overcome it. But like some of us are looked at as being brave because you go and do something. Like I box, everyone thinks it's brave, but it's not. I just do it because I've always been doing it. Like as no one's ever said to me it's dangerous. So I've never really, I mean, I've copped a few, but like it's just what it is. I don't care. Like, and I don't see myself as courageous at all. I just see myself as doing what I do. You're doing what you do. Then you've gone into the team environment. You know, like to me, making kids, boys and girls, playing team environments is critical in a development, particularly if you go into business. You've got to be able to run a team and or be part of a team, both. You've got to be able to do both. So you did you how what did you get out of that out of your rugby? Look, um, I played rugby from the time I was sort of under sevens over in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. It was back when Walrus. Oh, look, I can't even remember. Mark, yeah, down to be east, down east, down it was down where uh, that Park. floating hotel or floating restaurant is. Yeah, yeah, down, yeah, okay. where the seaplanes yeah, are. Yeah, 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 it was yeah. down. It was uh, down Lion there. Park. Lion Park. That that is it. Um, yeah, so it's featured as a, as a part of my life, but not not to a level that I'd call myself a, you know an accomplished player. My business partner, in, on the other hand, uh, Pete Bernheim, is a just absolutely magnificent rugby player. So if we were talking about rugby, I'd, I'd defer but to him. But you did understand team environments. Oh, look, yeah, absolutely. And I mean that that was bred into me not only through the family environment, but uh, you know, but throughout school, school and then ultimately yeah. when I finished high school, I was fortunate to be awarded a scholarship for the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra, where I went to study civil engineering. Of course, uh, if you see a bridge mark with my name written on it, I suggest you swim across. I've uh, <laughs> never been an accomplished engineer. But uh, but nonetheless, I uh, finished the degree, matriculated to the Royal Military College Duntroon, and, and therein commenced what was ultimately a career as a, as a leader. Yep. And I spent uh, ultimately 
uh, just under 20 years in service as an army officer, for which I'm in- incredibly proud. And it was about midway through that, uh, in, in the mid-2000s actually, where I did selection for the Special Forces Regiment and therein commenced what was ultimately 10 years in service as a leader and commander in the Special Forces. So that means you saw action. You weren't, you weren't just sitting in Duntroon sort of um, using a mouse, sort of trying to work out the geography of a certain terrain. No, not at all. I did uh, you know, well over 10 tours offshore um, and, and it's incredibly purposeful work as you might imagine. I can only imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I don't have a sense of, I mean, war is war. I mean, like it's a, it's a tough thing, but I just can't imagine your senses and also the test that you get put through in terms of resilience, responsibility, probably you're even questioning yourself, why am I here? I just can't imagine that the intensity that your brain would be pinging around every single day, every night when you're out in those environments. Um, I mean, I really am sensitive to talk about this stuff with you, but I just wonder whether or not at any stage were you ever challenged in your own mind? Oh, yeah, I mean, every day. Mm. Um, you know, this, this selection course to get into the organisation is incredibly tough. Um, it's certainly it's far from impossible. Um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people probably allow the process to defeat them at a, at a mental level, but there's no doubt there's in- incredible physical challenges. Um, but what the process is designed to do, at least from my perspective, is to reduce someone to their core and fundamental character attributes. It's there to assess chiefly three things as I see it, your ability to rapidly assimilate complex information, your ability to make sound judgments under duress, and your ability to lead in complex and ambiguous environments. And it's not you being judged though, is it? It's you really self-assessing to some extent. Is that, well, would that yeah, be right? Much of the course is self-assessment because there's a, there's a process of zero feedback. So you, you engage on this selection course, which, is, which goes for three weeks, but it's just the precursor to what is ultimately 18 months in, in reinforcement training and to become an operator. But you know, continually you test it and it's, it's purpose actually that drives you. It's certainly what, what drove me. You need to have a big why behind what, you. What was your why? I mean, during this process, I mean, what, what did you keep coming back to? It's about service at a fundamental level and contributing to something that's much, much bigger than what? you, bigger than your friends, bigger than your family. What and are you contributing to? In this instance, of course, it's national intent, national priorities and, you know, Australian national interests. Yeah. So that, cause that's a big call. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, there's, you don't need to be in the military to serve those purposes, no, no, totally. of course. You know, there's the, the whole range of government organizations, you know, and, and not just government, I'll, I'll add, you know, people that are driving economic value for the Well, for I just had country. someone in the podcast before you, sorry to interrupt then, Chris, but the podcast before you, I had somebody in this room here. He was talking about, in his view, his business is about serving the national interest in an economic sense. Sure. Yeah. And it's crucial. And it's critical. And, yeah. and of course, national interest covers a lot of area, but you're talking about protecting our shores and protecting the safety of us, but also protecting our national reputation. Well, that and people that can't protect themselves, you know, as Australians, of course, there's there's a duty and, and not speaking, you know, other than from my, my personal yeah. point of view here, but we have a duty as Australians, as a, as a, as a rich country, frankly, to, to then look after people. Others. Others, yeah, and, and be a good global citizen. And I think we do that incredibly well. And, it, and it's it's passionate for the for the people that are involved in those complex tasks. Do, do you see it as a? I mean, there, there is a controversy around this stuff. I guess. I mean, I presume you see both sides of the argument. But war in itself, you know, no one really wins it. I guess at the end of the day, because there's too many casualties. But at the same time, you can't just say, "Oh, therefore, I'm not going to go to war," or "I'm not going to I'm not going to serve," because if you don't, the other side of it, the other side of the 
the transaction will take control of, and, and, and or suppress you potentially or su- suppress others. It, it, it's a complex argument though. It's, uh, it's very complex and you've got to be clear-minded for these things I mean, because, uh, because you're, under, you're under severe duress and pressure and uh, not seeing your family, everything's not good. Sure, and that, and that Mark, that's precisely why the selection course is foundational to being involved in an organisation like that because the food and sleep deprivation, the, the hundreds of kilometres with heavy loads, and that is, as I mentioned before, that is just an artificial environment to reduce you to your fundamental and core character attributes because it's those character attributes that are going to shine through when it really matters um, and that's what that's when your metal really will be tested. And do you, how much of that, how much of the way you're brought up and what you saw, because it doesn't matter what your parents tell you, it's what you see your parents doing that forms foundations, I think, for us all. How much of, do you think of that period in your life when you're a young man, young boy, young man, parlayed into your future life that allowed you to get through all these obstacles and tests to ultimately be part of an organisation that reduce you to your lowest common denominator but still allow you to survive and be resilient? I mean, how much do you think that came through or is it just DNA, do you reckon? It's just something your parents are like. Look, I sort of tussle with this a little bit. Um, there's this question about causation and correlation and this mm. is what you're moving to, Mark. You know, when I, when I did the selection course, uh, it was alongside, you know, 170 others, of course, um, but it included two of my very best mates. And, and we, the three of us who had been best mates for about 10 years preceding the course, were the only three officers selected into the organisation. And, and ultimately, we became, you know, alongside each other, the three squadron commanders. And so you need to, when something like that happens, it's, it's pretty unlikely, yeah, that uh, that you're best mates, including yourself, will be, will be selected into the organization and you'll you know, progress sort of in step with each other. So is it, is it causation? Is it correlation? I don't know. Is it DNA? Were we attracted to each other as friends because of that mutual respect, because we saw that thread that we deeply respected in each other? I mean, we're fundamentally different people, of course. We all, I mean, every person is. But there's, there's clearly something that's nuanced and, and, and similar about us. And, and frankly, I'm very proud of that. And, and I can extend that same point uh, now into business uh, with one of those guys is in business with me and then and another guy I'm very proud to call, one of my very best friends also. It's interesting because my gut feeling is those experiences you had, and I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I hate the word, but it is a word. I don't know how, how else to explain it. Resilience that you build as a result of those experiences and or, or no, self-knowledge about yourself that you built. Um, in in those experiences, which are extreme experiences, those things are the hallmarks of what a successful business owner must have. It doesn't mean the business is going to be successful, but the business owner will be successful within the business as long as they've got the skills and there's a marketplace and all that sort of stuff. But you must have that. I mean, that, that's the soft skill that I'm talking about. You talked about earlier, soft skills, hard skills. They're the soft skills I'm talking about, as opposed to just the ability to do execute in the business. They're hard skills. but And it doesn't matter where you get the experiences from. In your case, you, you got it out of the army. I often wondered to myself, where was the genesis of building that up? Whether it was your parents' DNA, was it the kids you hung around with, was it the things you saw your parents do, was the unusual circumstances you found yourself in moving from, from Sydney to Brisbane, um, or is it just all of those things? And you being a leader, like you were a squadron leader, you must have saw, well, how many people would be in a squadron? I don't know. How many, how many people do you command? Oh, look, it, it depends on the particular well, It could type. be 100 or 200 or yeah, 10 or 20. You know, it doesn't matter. But you must have saw lots of yeah. young men 
and women, I guess, but yes. y- lots of young men. Yes. Who you were a leader for. Yes. And you must have spent, you must become like a, like a psychologist nearly because uh-huh. you would have been sitting there observing all these individuals. Well, you learn a lot, Mark, is the truth. You learn about yourself. You yeah. learn about, um, there's some extraordinary people and, and the organization that I was in particularly, there's a lot of times when you need to sort of take charge, so to speak, and, 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 and act, but there's more, more often than not, you're, you're being a servant leader. You're, you're taking the experience, the skills, the the incredible talents of those around you, and and frankly, all you're doing is enabling them to achieve, you know, what is a, a purposeful objective, and and that's pretty satisfying to be honest. To to watch people self motivated, driven, um, with incredible tenacity, to to achieve things that would to many people seem like impossible or, or certainly extraordinary. Yeah, that, that's. Like to me, I mean, I don't know, it appeals to me. It was like, to me, would would be one of the most extraordinary experiences. It clearly is dangerous and full of risk. And I guess on the flip side of it, adventure is one thing, but there's risk. You must become very good at risk management. You must be able to identify risk. How do you think that has parlayed into your business life? So critically, I mean, mean, you know, no matter where you look in any organization, there are going to be fires mm. and you want to treat them all. You want to put out all those fires, but invariably you won't have the resource or the time or to prioritize. You need to prioritize, and so you need to you need to understand exactly where do you apply resource at what time for what purpose, and then you need to be prepared to quickly adapt and and be, and be flexible in your approach. What you need, of course, as a leader to do is ensure that there isn't you know, at risk of extending the analogy a bit too far that there's not a fire in the attic. Yeah, that yeah, you're not totally. aware of in business. I'm doing it all the time. I mean, you have to do it all the time. I, I want to, because like, you know, we're, we're, we're talking sort of abstractly at the moment, which for a particular reason, but we'll move from that into your business because I want to talk, I want to go to the break now and talk to our sponsors quickly. And then I want to come back and talk about Sonda. I want to know, when was it that you decided, what was the light bulb moment? When did you say, this is a business that I can do? I've got skills, hard skills, soft skills. I've got business partners that I can bring in. There's an audience, a marketplace, and I want to know what your business is. We're back with Chris Maher. Chris has a business called Sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R. We talked about his backstory. It's a pretty cool backstory. It's very interesting. Um, and I want to know if I could put all that into one page, Chris, what was the moment you decided to say, okay, I'm going to take all those skills, hard and soft, all my experiences, I reckon I can turn them into a business. Where did you think about this? Do you remember the time? Well, I do distinctly. Yeah. Um, and it started off with, with the team. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the session, I'm proud to be in business with two of my best mates. Of course, the business is much bigger than, than any of us right now, but of course, it has to start from somewhere and it started just at that fundamental level with a team. What do you mean? You'd retire from the army or something? What's that mean? We, we were considering um, our moves, you know, both Pete and I were finishing up our time as squadron commanders. Um, Craig at the time was a, was a diplomat with Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And, and I guess as you look forward in a, in a career like that, Within a varying degree of certainty, you can sort of start to plan out your life. In, How old were you? I was 35. 35. So you can start to plan out your life to, you know, as I said, to a varying degree of certainty for the next sort of 20 or 30 years of your life. And, and if you've got an entrepreneurial mindset or, or bent, then in part that becomes less attractive. I know for a lot of people that stability would be really attractive. Um, but in considering that moving forward, I didn't want the military, despite the fact I – 
I loved it. I still love it and, and think, you know, very passionately about it. I didn't want it to be the only thing that I ever knew. I, I won't speak for my business partners, but, but I, I suggest it's probably not dissimilar. Um, and against all the entrepreneurial literature, you read all the books, it'll say, you know, start with an incredible problem that you yourself have a pain point for, address that pain point. And in so doing, you'll no doubt create evangelists and, and by virtue of that, you'll, you know, these micro and macro gr- growth loops and da 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 and you'll build a magnificent business. Well, we, you know, thought we knew better and we sort of threw out the rule book in that respect. And we just, we went back to, to that thing I mentioned before, that why, that, that purpose, that drive. At a fundamental level, what we wanted to do in private enterprise was to help make the world a safer, more meaningfully connected place. And in considering how we might do that in a commercial way, it sort of you know excited the synapses to a degree, and and it seemed like an incredible challenge. So with with the team, at least the foundations of a team now set with Craig and Pete and I, um, we we went about on effectively three principles. We wanted to create a new marketplace, have something globally scalable. And most importantly, we wanted to continue in, in private and in commercial life to satisfy a very strong altruistic motive. We want we wanted to help people. And and help means what? What do you mean by help then? Sonda is an on-demand support network, the premise of which is to get help by someone's side anywhere on earth in less than 20 minutes. And of course, the way we achieve that on the supply side is through accessing capacity what was previously dormant capacity by way of ex and off-duty police, ambulance, mental health, workers, and, and highly qualified people that sit on supply. We wrap technology around that supply in order to connect them with people that need help, which is typically under the thresholds of the emergency services. I mean, to be clear, we're, we're not here to restart a heart or, or chase and fight crime. We're here to deal with low threshold incidents. Um, you know, we, we set up the business with with an expectation and an erroneous one that we'd be dealing with, you know, physical injuries, safety issues uh, on a sort of global scale. And certainly we do that. But more recently, and it potentially it moves to those elements that we mentioned before, mark of resilience, we're finding that, you know, something in the order of 43% of all the issues that we deal with are mental fitness related. And, and that's normal, I guess, in this world at pace that we mentioned before, you know, there's just in, increasing tempo, frequency, you know, you know, work, rest, play, they're all sort of People intertwined. Worn out. People are worn out. It happens to me. Sure. I, yeah. I get it. I mean, I, I, 100%, like sometimes I just, my brain is fried and I get mental health issues as a result of it. And I mean, I've got techniques. It takes me a long time to fix it, but yeah, I, I can get it. I know, I know plenty of guys like this, particularly ex-sportsmen. Sure. Or particularly people who have been involved in intense business lives or intense sporting lives and uh, who are used to the intensity and then the intensity drops off. But when they're tired, they, just, they sort of tend to get lost. I, I've been through the process myself. But what I want to know, though, Chris, is like, for example, um, you build a marketplace. I like that. You, you've got a marketplace. You're, you're matching ex-servicemen or ex-servicewomen. Typically, they're former emergency services. Emergency services being what? What, what are we Police, talking about? Ambulance, Police, ambulance, fire. Army? Yeah, some military people. Um, anyone with a sort of you know, background that is in the trade of you know, critical incident response, um, people that have got mental health, first aider training, um, you know, highly qualified. So you gather those people. We so- do, and of course, the, the the benefit of that in in the global sense. I mean, we're building a global responder network. So by definition, therefore, we have to have this supply globally. Yep. And and I guess the important aspect about that category of people is that they exist in almost every major demographic center throughout the world. 
They're trusted by their local communities. They often understand local complexities, jurisdictional issues, legalities, cultural nuances. They know people. They know people. They, their shift cycle means they're available both sides of the clock. They're, Are they working perhaps? Sometimes. It depends on the employment regulations within their various, the various yeah, yeah. constabularies. But, you know, they, they, these are people that would are otherwise motivated to get up and help someone anyway. Yeah. All we're doing is providing the facility yeah, to Yeah, you're, you're building the platform or the market. Correct. And what's on the other side? So, so we've got the supplies. Well, let's call it the supply side. The other one could be look like the supply side. But let's say that the skill side. Yes. Sitting over here. They're um, either current or ex-service people involved in emergency services, no matter what that emergency service could be. Correct. And on the demand side or on the the other side, um, the need side, what are we talking about? What's, give me a typical example of a, a person who may have been assisted more recently or in the last 12 months. We're chiefly an enterprise distribution business, and, and we look for three commercial principles as part of that go-to-market Number one, we look for high need demographics and or demographics that exist under a legislated duty of care. Number two, we want that demographic to exist at geographic density because if it exists at geographic density, then we can forecast with a relative high degree of certainty where demand is likely to emanate from. And, and on how the much basis, supply you need. Yeah, exactly. On the basis of understanding that, we can reduce our marginal cost of service and, yep. get, and get the price point to a scalable level, yep. frankly. And, and it helps to increase supply-side liquidity you know, really nowhere to put our responders. Yeah, you don't want 20 people up in Ballina, for example, where there might only be one demand. Yeah, spot on. Yeah. And then and then lastly, the, the last principle is about acquisition at scale. So when we considered those three elements in unison, we happened very quickly upon the student marketplace and as a subset of that, the international student marketplace. And as a supplier or as a as a need? As a need. Yeah. 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 And, and it, this is sort of born of, you know, not perhaps the most obvious reasons, you know, and perhaps, you know, separate to the, the this coronavirus uh, tragedy that's befallen the world, um, you know, not, notwithstanding that, it, it's worth something in the order of $39 billion to the Australian economy. I think it's our third largest export market. So it's not it's not for those reasons, but th- that'd be attractive ones in and of themselves. It, it's because they satisfy those three principles, Mark. You know, they're a high need demographic and they exist under a legislative duty of care. Ergo, the universities by signing a, a student visa, yep. they've got a duty of care that extends mm. not just when they're on campus, but wherever they happen to be. So let's say, okay, I'll give you an example. I've got, a, I've got a kid who's doing a master's degree of commerce. Um, he comes from Beijing. He's, he lives on the campus. Um, what would be a circumstance whereby they might use your services potentially? Do they ring you or how does it work? So we have a technology interface. It has a, a series of features that, that, you know, in the first instance, you know, someone can swipe to get help and that, that can be at really low threshold. So that might be because they, you know, feeling stressed or need some mental health support. It could be um, because they've just witnessed you know, some impropriety. It might be, you know, un- unfortunately, this is something we deal with quite a lot, you know, a, a victim of sexual assault or, or common assault. We found that we're providing a, a sort of a lower barrier to entry or lower barrier to reporting. Yeah, they don't have to go to the police, which is well, we, confronting. We, we, we do end up getting them there. Of course, that's, yeah, that's yeah, our but Initially, duty, I mean. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can only... I can only imagine how challenging it must be to, to lift the phone up and, and start to have those initial conversations. And and we're seeing, you know, as I mentioned, statistically relevant data now, which is suggestive that the the incident rate is much much higher than we probably anticipate through you know regular yeah. statistics. Well, because the stats are only going on what's been reported. Spot on, yeah. spot on. And and so we get a lot of I guess satisfaction from being able to assist in in those circumstances and ensure that person that's been ill treated. Um, 
gets the right support. And, and that support's not going to be from us in, in a long-term sense. We're, we're the yeah. central point of coordination, triage, prioritization, and response. Yep. We work with partners. We've got globally recognized partners across six different enterprise verticals from you know, financial services with Commonwealth Bank you know, to you know, more than half of Australia's universities. Um, and you know, very shortly we expect to, to excuse the pun here, I can't help myself, launch a pilot with Qantas. Um, and uh, and and a, and a variety of up, you know PwC as a, as an example, but it, this is in recognition that it's it's broad. This is not a this is not a business about students. You know, students yeah, yeah. help us to underwrite our operational but infrastructure. They're part of marketplace. That's it. Well, yeah, they they create these density clusters of demand yeah. in every city, in every town, certainly in Australia and New Zealand now, and, and soon around the world that that enable us to increase supply side liquidity, enable us to understand how many responders we need in particular localities, and and then that allows us at lower marginal cost to then sell this to major enterprises. Because their duty of care extends as well. I mean, there's you, so you take your product into corporations. Most certainly, most of these organisations, certainly ASX two hundred uh, companies and, and and thereabouts, you know, they have well constructed processes for for within an office environment, within a mine site, yeah, yeah. within a, an environment with which they can control. You know, but of course, there's this sort of increasing movement for for staff to be mobile, flexible, and remote. That of course extends duty of care to to areas that organisations cannot control. Mm. And, and very simply, we provide a, a technology framework backed up with real people that is able to provide support to staff members, to students, um, frankly, to, to people. And there will be a move in, in, in time to consumer markets. That's not our play at the moment. And that's just for the fundamental reason that the cost of customer acquisition is too high. Mm. We provide compelling economic solutions for organizations. Oh, I won't mention the partner, but you know, th- there's instances with a with a major insurance partner where we've tripled their channel volume by market differentiation and, and reduced what's that mean channel volume volume so the, the number of policies that they sell yep so we've increased that by three times with within channel and then by dealing with low threshold incidents outside the traditional frameworks of the emergency services we've been able to impact their bottom line in a really meaningful way and of course for an, for insurance market which is incredibly thinly margined this is this is yeah, extraordinary yeah, you know, within the financial services sector we, we're enabling you know mobile lenders to now take meetings in in places on their own where they might otherwise just feel a little bit vulnerable. And that's so how not- would that work, for example? Like, you know, I've got a business that does that. So how would that – do you mean they might be intimidated by going to a certain place? Or how, what do you mean? Well, your your business, Mark, Yellow Brick Road, you've, mm. you're ostensibly you've got people that are going into people's homes. 2,000 of them. Yeah, sure. Two, and, that's why I went yeah. to you before this uh, yeah. session started. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're 7% of every every broker in this country works for me. So Sure. But, I mean, so when would they get intimidated, for example? Because it's, it's funny, I've never, I never thought about it. It's not necessarily intimidation. Okay. What it is is, you know, you're probably going to be okay, but you're, you're sending people into an environment that you can't control. Yeah, yeah. It's an environment that you've, you've not got a lens on. If mm. there was something untoward that happened, you've got no ability, one, to know, two, to do anything about it. And, and when would you find out, Mark, that, that you're- you, Generally speaking, when it's in the newspaper. Yeah, there you go. Probably too late. And, and, and of course, on one part, this is about mitigating risk for, for boards and, and for, you yep. know, under fiduciary duties and all this sort of thing. And it's meaningful. But there's, there's this point at a more sort of human level, it's about care. Mm. Like you need to have, you, it's your duty, as we spoke about before, if you're strong, you need to provide, it's your duty to provide- for those that, that that can't, and this is a mechanism to do that. So, like, let's say we engaged you, Sonda. 
what's the education process for my mobile lenders, for argument's sake? I mean, what, 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 do you go and give them a bit of a lecture or a talk or something, or do they go online to a course, or do you just afford them the opportunity to have a look at what you guys do? I mean, how, how would they how would they translate to a, a mobile lender in my case, in the Big Road? So we go, we go through an integration process with with partners. I mean, yep. it, it's partner led ultimately. Yep. So we go through this agreed protocols framework. That's so that you know, in this instance, Yellow Brick Road would tell Sonda when you want us to zig and when you want us to zag. Mm-hmm. Um, that enables us to sort of integrate as part of your own critical incident management procedures. The technology is incredibly easy to use it's 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 intuitive we've got some you know some of the best minds in the country that are working to ensure that that's the case so there's no sort of training that's required from that point of view and so really it's uh it's a one-stop shop that is fully integrated with your with your organization and who pays me or you do yeah yeah me the corporation yes the corporation yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah and i so i guess that i want to make it commercial for you mark sorry to intrude but you know one of one of our financial services partners we demonstrated with empirical evidence that we generate $10.6 million for their EBITDA. Right. And we do that through increased productivity, reduction of staff churn, and increased staff engagement. So really your customer is the bigger organization, not at the consumer level, so to speak, like at the mobile lender level. It's more at my level for me to provide the service to them. Correct. In relation to my duty of care relative to the way the world is today. I mean, and, you know, it's funny – I'll be honest with you, I don't like using the word – I reckon as soon as we start using the word duty of care, it's like we're doing – it's something we've got to do because we've got to do it as opposed to actually caring. Uh, and uh, it's sort of an interesting situation because um, I often ask myself, do I really care? I mean, I actually ask myself that. Do I do I really care about these individuals? Of course you do. You're a leader. Yeah, well, I, I do, but only when I've met them and I know them. Uh, and that's why I make, make it my business to go to functions and to go to conferences and actually see them there. And Because if I just sit back in my office environment and I don't see anybody, it's just like they don't exist in my world. And I, and I look at – and that's what leadership's about. It's actually getting on the ground and like you did in your army career. You've got to actually – you can't be a leader from, as I said earlier, with a mouse sitting there with a computer. you actually physically got to be there to, to actually – care for these individuals because you've got to know them, at least know what they look like or at least know a little bit about them or at least get a sense of them, feel them. And to me, that's what leadership's all about. I've been, I've been, the duty of care or just caring about people is what leaders do. And your experience as a leader, uh, you know, with your other two mates leading your units, that has allowed you to become this person who you are today with Sonda and allows you to sort of sell the concept to others because you know what care is about. It's not just a duty. It is a duty, but it's not just a duty. You generally care. And the way you care is you've been on the ground. You know what it means to be there. And I, I have to say, like our politicians, when they're sitting back in Canberra and they're getting caught up in all the bullshit and all the process and, you know, bloody budgets and all this other stuff, stuff that removes them from being a leader, being on the ground, being there where the bushfire victims are, being there where the drought victims are, being there where the flood victims are, being, where the, being there where the economic victims are. You know, small business owners. That's what wins elections. That's what makes us warm to these individuals. That's what makes your squadron warm to you as the leader. That's what makes, you know, your big clients have a good cultural fit with the people in their organization, the, let's call in my case, the mobile lenders, because they know I'm actually giving them something that actually helps them. It's good for them. It's quite interesting, um, this whole arena of duty of care and care and leadership and how businesses can be built off that, which is what you've done. Would that be With a fair others. summary? <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't matter. You and others have done it, but 
you're you're here now. You've done this, in my and and that goes right back to your all your experiences, and it probably goes right back to when you're a, a kid. Your mum took you up to Brisbane, and she provided you the best environment, notwithstanding, and your dad, notwithstanding the circumstances. Yeah, it's right. Um, you know, one of my business partners, Craig, he uh. He made a comment uh, to, to Pete and I recently. It was, a, it was a flattering one, I guess, or I guess that's how he intended it. But he said, you're the aggregate of the five per- people you spend the most time with. And I guess that means choose your friends wisely, choose who you spend your time with wisely, because you're going to become more like them. 100%. And when you consider that from the perspective of leadership, you know it forces you to be self-aware. It forces you to consider how you want to be considered, how you want to be remembered, and what impact ultimately you want to have on this world. And who you are. It's a really important question to ask. Who am I? What do I want to leave behind? What do I want to change? And you started right off at the beginning by making a global change. That's a big call, but like I'm saying to all the entrepreneurs out there, all the business people, all the aspirational people listening to this and or watching it, don't be afraid to want to change the way things are locally, by the nation, or globally. It's a good thing to do. You can do it. So I always give everybody opportunity to ask me a question. I've been asking all the questions. So what one question you got for me? Um, what do you put your success down to? Is it other people, influences, people you've had around? Is it skills, experience? Definitely I have the skills. I, I have the ability to execute. And the reason I have the ability to execute is because I only choose to go down those roads where I know I have those skills and or I can gather those skills around me. But I don't go down, down into territories where or into – into war zones for that matter, where I know that I don't at least have experience and or an understanding of the skills that I need to employ. I might not be completely updated, but I have enough experience to know that I can pull it all together. Mm-hmm. I choose my fights every time. I always choose my battles. And I choose them carefully, and I choose the people who is going to come into the battle with me. I know them. I, I know what their ability is. I always have, I say this a lot, um, I'm a cutter, and but I always need a sower behind me. And so I'm lucky. I always have a person who can sew behind me, no matter what I do in business, I'm talking about, and it's my brother. So I trust him implicitly, my younger brother. My younger brother's not that young, but relatively speaking, <laughs> but my younger brother is an ex-lawyer, ex-investment banker, very, very, very sound and very good at what he does. He, he, he's very good at detail. He never misses, never misses anything and he, is, he fights for literally every centimetre in a deal. I can say to him, because he's my brother, mate, we're not going to fucking fight for that. Let, let that one go. But if I don't say I'm letting it go, he doesn't let go of anything. Nothing. Zero. And I can know I can sleep and I know and he will not let it go of anything until I'm ready to say, let's go, let, let go of that. That's his personality. And I think the, the final thing is, I mean, I'm lucky, like extraordinarily lucky um, because I have a, a great ability to work under extreme circumstances. Like, you know, I, I'm 64. You know, I can still get on last Saturday, I went to Perth. I was in the early flight to Perth. I got up at 4.30, went to the other Perth. I worked all day, worked till, and then I stayed at 11 p.m. Perth time, which is 2 p.m. Sydney time. Took the bread. I didn't sleep for a second because it was on a shitty flight and there was a bloke next to me sneezing, which was freaking me out. And then I got at 6 a.m. And I, and I had a half an hour sleep and I was okay. Then tonight I won't get home till 11 o'clock because after these podcasts I've got to go to Melbourne work down there. So I have a I have a physical ability and I put that down to not I'm not born with this. But I put that down to I'm, I've been able to stay healthy and it's my parents got me in a healthy environment from day one. Mm. 
Mm. I always live this healthy environment, and I'm I don't I don't want you to get me wrong, but I go. You know, I used to when I was young, I used to drink a lot and all that sort of stuff. But I've always had this routine or this regular regular sort of process, which allows me to do more than my counterparts. I can actually work longer hours and put up with extreme shit, and only because and that that's I guess that's resilience. That's only because I've been doing it forever, not because I was born that way. I've just been doing it forever. So I so I, in summary, I put it down to. Picking my fights, knowing where I've got the, and knowing that I, I've either got the skills or I can find the people who've got the skills to go into that, go into that environment. I have, I'm pretty resilient sort of individual. Um, I don't really don't care what happens to me at the end of the day either. I, I don't. I mean, I, whatever it is that it is, I, I deal with it. And you're a I, stoic. I just, it's just my nature. Mm. I, I don't, I don't. I'm not a tough guy. I'm not. I just don't care. I just say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in the ring with this guy. I'll do whatever. I don't care. Whatever's if someone says, let's climb the tree, I'll climb the fucking tree. I'm not saying, oh, I'm a daredevil. I, I just say, okay, whatever. I'll do it. Maybe it's a sense of adventure. I don't know. I don't even look at it as a sense of adventure. I just say, yeah, I'll do it. It's okay. But I think the most important thing is that I want to make change. So I want to use all those things that I've accumulated in my life to make change. That's all I care about. I don't like things being done the way they've always been done and being done for just that reason. Is there a better way of doing something? Mm. And I only do it in my own environments, so things that, I'm, that I know about. I don't venture into anything outside of there. So to, to some extent, I guess I'm not that adventurous when I think about <laughs> it because I stick to my own path. But hopefully that answers your question. Um, Thanks, Mark. That, I, hope, I hope that answers your question. Um, I've been lucky in my life, you know, like extraordinarily lucky, um, had great influences in my life. But for me today, there's probably no one who does that because I'm too old for it. But I, what I hope to do is influence people like you and other people to continue with the great work you're doing. So I'm basically, that's why I love this job, doing my podcast, because I've got people like you and everyone else comes to my podcast who want to make change. And you're a young man, you're, you know, you're, you're the age, one of my sons, one of my, my older son. And I, I just think it's wonderful people like you want to make change and uh, put everything online for it and prosecute it hard. And it's good change. I mean, like, if you do something for the right reason, if it's a right purpose, I think ultimately you'll be successful. There'll be a tough road. But ultimately, you'll be successful. So I want to say thank you. I want to say, by the way, I want to say thank you. This is important. You were very modest in the way you describe what you've done in your past as an Australian. I want to say thank you for your years as an army squadron leader and seeing doing things that most of us would never contemplate. We owe a duty to you to make sure that you know that we appreciate what you've done. Thanks, Mark. Thanks very much. It. 